Yes, Lord, we come into your presence now. We receive the gift that you have offered us of redemption and life and your love. Thank you for dying for us and giving us through grace entrance into your dear presence. And now this morning as we hear the word preached and read to us, soften our hearts that we might hear what it is that we need to this morning through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated as we hear the Bible reading this morning. Jesus, the great high priest. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when, God call, when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, 
he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Well, g'day church. Uh, it's been a while, but COVID's finally got me. I, I'm not too bad at the moment uh, so far. So I'm hoping to be back on deck next week for carols. But um, uh, today's the last week in our series on the incarnation. So why God became human. Uh, it's been a really great time to delve into these issues together. And we've seen over these few weeks uh, uh, the answer that the Bible gives to those that question. Uh, Jesus is the eternal son who comes to reveal the father to us. But he also comes to perfect our humanity, to show us what true humanity looks like. And then last week we saw how he came to redeem us, to buy us out of slavery, our slavery to sin, uh, and into his sonship through his own sacrifice at the cross. And that, how that, that gives us a really sure hope for the future. Well, what we're doing this week is we're thinking about why Jesus came, not just to achieve our redemption in the past, not just to give us a bright hope for the future, but he came to have an ongoing ministry to his people here and now. So, so the risen Jesus serves his people now, today. Um, and it's as a human that he does that. This is really, um, I think, really key. And, and one key way the New Testament shows this is uh, it uses the Old Testament role of a high priest who represents his people before God. Uh, Jesus perfects and fulfills that role for us. Uh, I reckon this is a really neglected truth, uh, but that we, when we neglect it, we, uh, we do so at great loss. Um, and that if we receive and rest in this word, it's a reality that is really full of sweet comfort and power to change us uh, and even to give us joy in the lives God calls us to live. Um, I haven't been able to prepare and record a full sermon for you, so I'm going to hand over now to Jeff Lynn from Trinity Church Adelaide. Uh, now, this is a sermon that was recorded a few years ago, so there'll be some references that don't really make sense to us. Um, but you're in good hands with Jeff, and I pray you'll be really blessed by this teaching from Hebrews chapter 4 and 5 on this whole theme of Jesus being our great high priest. So God bless. Um, don't forget next week, uh, 10.30, come dressed up for carols to celebrate the wonder of Christmas. And I uh, hope to see you soon. All right, God bless. Bye. Okay, well, if you are with us last week, you'll recall that I started the sermon by saying that heaven is about the most unreal aspect of Christianity. And you'll see the title of this week's talk is A Better High Priest, which will make at least some of us think that this is about the most unnecessary part of Christianity. After all, who needs a priest in today's day and age? Uh, you need all sorts of things in life. You need a GP. You need an accountant, eventually. You need a mechanic. You need a personal trainer, maybe. A life coach, even. But a priest? And your scepticism could come from a whole bunch of reasons. It might be that you're here tonight as someone who's not a believer in God, so there's no deity that you think you need to appease. You might be here as someone who does believe in God, but think that on the whole you're actually a pretty good person, so you have no sin that you need to atone for. You might believe in God and think that you're sinful, 
but see no need for an intermediary, for someone to stand on your behalf. After all, here at Holy Trinity, we are good evangelicals. We are children of the Reformation. We have rejected papal authority. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. Finally, given the Royal Commission, who would actually want a priest in their life? Well, for just a few minutes tonight, I want us to see why we do need a priest, and not just a priest, but a high priest, and why it's wonderful news, therefore, that Jesus is not just another high priest, but in fact, a better high priest than all. So point one there, since we have a great high priest. Now, in many ways, the last verse of last week's passage tells us why it is that we need a priest at all. Have a look with me there, chapter 4, verse 13, on page 1707. Chapter 4, verse 13 Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Verse 13 is reminding us that if you must answer to the God who sees everything in your life, and not just your success and your achievements, but also your failure and your shame, if you must answer to that God, it would be pretty important to have an advocate or a defender, or a spokesperson to stand on your behalf, to be on your side, to argue your case. And religious language, that's just called a priest. And incredibly for us Christians, that priest is none other than Jesus, the Son of God himself. Look with me at verses 14 through 16. Verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who ascended into heaven... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Uh, two reasons why Jesus is our great high priest. And these are the blanks for you to fill in on your handout there. Firstly, he gets us. He gets us. Verse 15 told us that Jesus is able to empathise with our weaknesses. He has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Jesus knows what it means to be human. The second reason why Jesus is a great high priest... Point two, second blank to fill in, is because he is acceptable to God. He is acceptable to God. Jesus gets us in that he was tempted in every way just as we are, but he is also acceptable to God because did you notice what verse 15 added? It said, yet he did not sin. You see, unlike every other priest who has lived, Jesus is sinless. And that's the reason why back in verse 14, back in verse 14, we were told that Jesus has ascended into heaven. Because Jesus is sinless, he's entitled to enter God's presence. And the reason he can do that is because, again, verse 14, he is the Son of God. Jesus is God's Son. There is no one else in the whole universe who's better placed to enter God's throne room than God's own flesh and blood. 
Now, in verse 16, therefore, the writer will show us what the point is for us. He'll show us what the benefit is of Jesus, the great high priest, entering into God's throne room. Verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So the writer is saying, because Jesus has entered the throne room of God the Father, let us do the same with confidence. Now, of course, the importance of that is often lost on us Australians. We Australians who are anti-authoritarian, anti-elitist, we live in an egalitarian democracy, we don't have a ruling nobility or an upper class in that sense. So we need to be reminded from time to time that you cannot simply walk into the presence of God unannounced whenever you feel like it. In fact, whenever people come into God's presence in the Bible, it's generally a completely overwhelming experience. Take, for example, the prophet Isaiah. I've quoted there from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. This is at the beginning of Isaiah's ministry, some hundreds of years before Jesus. Isaiah is drawn into the throne room of God. Here's what he says. Woe to me, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, but my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You do not just enter whenever you feel like it into the throne room of God. Not uninvited and not unannounced. So how is it that Jesus makes this possible? Well, the clue lies there in verse 16. It's in the word that's repeated twice. It's by grace. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Verse 16 is telling us the reason we can enter into God's presence at all is because God has taken the initiative to make it possible. And he's done it through his son. Many of you will be familiar with Tim Keller, uh, outstanding American preacher and pastor. He has a lovely phrase to describe the privilege that we have of being able to enter into God's throne room because of Jesus. He says, no one gets to wake up the king at 3am except for his children. No one gets to wake up the king at 3am except for his children. That's what we get to do because of our older sibling Christ. Now as an aside, this is why the Roman Catholic tradition of praying to the saints, of praying to Mother Mary and so on, is both useless and unnecessary. It's both useless and unnecessary because in contrast, Jesus gets us and Jesus is acceptable to God. So why do you need anything else? Well, at this point, in chapter 5, the writer is going to expand further on what makes Jesus such a great high priest. So you see there at point 2, why Jesus is such a great high priest. Uh, two things. Firstly, he is able to empathise with our weaknesses. And secondly, he has been called by God. Let me say something about each. Firstly, Jesus is able to empathise with our weaknesses. Uh, let me read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 5, page 1708. Chapter 5, verse 1. 
Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. Verse 1 reminds us again of what a high priest actually does. We're told there, he represents the people in matters related to God. He offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. And if you're not convinced why that's important, well, verse 2 adds, we are ignorant and are going astray. Now, because a high priest is just an ordinary person like you and me, who's been invested with a special responsibility... Verse 2 points out that he can therefore identify with us. The high priest can empathise with the people whom he represents. You'll notice that lovely phrase in verse 2. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weaknesses. In fact, to emphasise the humanity of the high priest, how just alike he is with you and I, In verse 3, the writer says he even has to offer sacrifices for his own sins. That's how like us the high priest was. And that's, of course, the great shortcoming of every high priest who has ever lived. He's not perfect himself. What right does he have to offer sacrifices on our behalf? And so I think at this point what the writer is doing is he's asking a hypothetical question. What if, hypothetically speaking, you could find a high priest who was both like us but had no sins of his own that he needed to atone for? How good would that high priest be? I mean, to put it really bluntly, if he didn't have to atone for his own sins, he could spend all his time atoning for our sins. And what's more, if he had no sins of his own, you could be guaranteed he would always be welcome in God's presence. He would have the right to stand before God on our behalf. Which, of course, is where the writer is leading. He's going to show us that Jesus is not just every other high priest, he is the better high priest. And that's because he's being called by God. Point two. Now pick it up in verse 4, actually. Chapter 5, verse 4. The writer says, No one takes on this honour himself, but receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. What the writer is reminding us is that Aaron, Israel's first high priest, was called by God. He didn't ask for the job. He didn't self-appoint. And so therefore, what the writer is going to say is that if Jesus has been called by God, you can be certain that God will accept him. So verse 5, In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You're my son. Today I become your father. And he says in another place, You're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, what's going on here? Well, the writer clearly is quoting. He's quoting from the Old Testament, and in fact, he's quoting from the Psalms. Two quotes 
to show that Jesus wasn't self-appointed or self-designated, rather that Jesus has been set apart by God to offer sins, offer sacrifices for our sins. Now let's look at each of them briefly. The first quote, you're my son, today I'll become your father. That's from Psalm 2 verse 7, if you're taking notes. Psalm 2 verse 7. In telling us that Jesus is God's son, which actually we've seen already in this passage, and in fact throughout the whole of Hebrews, in telling us that Jesus is God's son, it's a sign of parental pride or parental validation. Jesus belongs in his father's throne room because he is God's son. The second quote comes from Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 110, verse 4. This one here, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Well, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? We'll just keep going. Actually, looking around, I can see some of the smiles on your faces. Melchizedek, where's that come from? What's that all about? Well, I'm going to do something a bit cheeky today. If you look on the right-hand side of your Bibles, you'll see chapter 7 is headed Melchizedek the priest. The entire chapter 7 is all about Melchizedek. So I'm just going to put that off for a couple of weeks when Des is preaching. So he can have the fun of that passage. Let me just say for now that in quoting, you are a priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek, quoting, you are a priest forever, I think what the writer is doing is saying to us that Jesus is forever. Jesus is always on duty for us as our high priest. He will never wander off. He will never take a break. He will never need to retire. He will never need to be replaced. He is a priest forever standing on our behalf. Now, at this point, for some of us, your head is probably spinning a bit. Your head's trying to work out how can Jesus both get us, that is, be like us, and at the same time be acceptable to God, that is, not sin in any way when all of us sin. How do you put those two ideas together? Well, actually, I think that's what verses 7 through 10 try to do. So let me just read out these last four verses of the passage and I'll say a couple of things. Verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, focusing on verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. I think what verse 7 is referring to is perhaps the best example in all of Scripture about how Jesus can be both one of us and acceptable to God, I think it's referring to his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, That's, of course, the second reading that Trace brought to us from Luke 22. You remember the prayer that Jesus prays? It's the night before he goes to the cross 
to be the sacrifice for our sins. And seeing what lies ahead of him, he prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. What's Jesus asking for in this prayer? Well, at one level, he's asking for God to save him, to spare him from death. And in fact, of course, God could do that. You see that there in verse 7 of Hebrews 5. He's praying to the one who could save him from death. But of course, God does not. Jesus will go to the cross the next day. And yet verse 7 also says that Jesus was heard because of his reverent submission. We're told that God hears Jesus' prayer. How? Well, he doesn't spare him the cross. He must still drink that cup. But do you remember what happened in that episode that Trace read to us? After Jesus prays the prayer, what's the very next thing that happens? We're told that an angel appeared and strengthened him. An angel appeared and strengthened him. If nothing else, we learn from Christ that God does not always answer our prayers the way in which we would like him to. But what he does promise is that he will strengthen us. And of course, the great gift that God gives to every Christian is that he puts his Holy Spirit in us to enable us to keep his will. Well, verses 8 and 9 will pose a couple of tricky questions about Christ's humanity. Remember, he must be human so that he can empathise with us. But it does raise some tricky theological questions. And I thought I'd pause for just a moment on them because they are important. I've listed both of them there for you on the handout. What does it mean when it says Jesus learned obedience? And what does it mean when it says once made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation? Now the reason why I focused on those two questions is because they seem to imply that in some way before the cross, Jesus was different from afterwards, that he was less whereas after the cross he was somehow more. Well, what does it mean that Jesus learned obedience? Let me tell you what it can't mean. In saying that Jesus learned obedience, it can't mean that Jesus was disobedient beforehand. He just needed to be punished and rebuked until he got his act together. It can't mean that because, remember what we saw in chapter 4, verse 15? Chapter 4, verse 15, he was without sin. So rather, I think when it says Jesus learned obedience, it probably means Jesus learned the meaning of obedience. Or to put it slightly differently, in going to the cross, Jesus fully felt the cost of obedience, but still, he was faithful to God to the very end. What about the second question? What does once made perfect Jesus became the source of eternal salvation mean? Well, again, let me tell you what once made perfect can't mean. It can't mean that Jesus was, before the cross, imperfect 
or defective in some way. That's because, as we've just seen, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He is the one through whom God made the universe. He has been there from the very beginning. So instead, when it says that Jesus was made perfect, I think the idea is that Jesus has been certified or given the stamp of approval in going to the cross, in keeping his Father's will. Jesus is confirmed to be God's Son. Let me give you an example. If you're the kind of person who built and designed bridges, as if you're a civil engineer, even after the bridge has been finished, my guess is that you wouldn't say that it's been completed or perfected until cars had actually driven safely across it to test it, to verify its integrity. So too with Jesus. He has always been God's son, but in keeping his father's will, even to the cross, he is shown to be the eternal son of God. Now, some of you there are thinking, okay, that's nice, Jeff. What's, what's the point? What does that mean for us? We'll come back to verse 9. Once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who believe him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. I think what the writer is saying is that if Jesus went through all that, can you see how wonderful that will be for you and I? He is a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And the whole point of that, of course, is that therefore he is the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Because this high priest is eternal, not just temporary, it means that no matter how you feel about him, even if you forget him, still he always lives and pleads for you. Uh, in a few minutes, we're going to wrap up our time together with a great song. Here's how it goes. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me to depart. Well, point three, so what for us? What difference does all this make for us tomorrow? When, I was going to say, you go to work or to uni, but it's a public holiday, don't forget that. What difference does this make for us tomorrow and the day after and every day until we meet again next week? I'll give you two brief suggestions. They're both printed there for you on your handout. Firstly, pray like Jesus prayed. Pray like Jesus prayed. Jesus is an example for us to follow. His prayer in Gethsemane is one for us to pray. 
Father, not my will be done, but yours. The Bible consistently points that way. It urges us to live in imitation of Christ, to be like Christ, to live like Christ, to ask what would Jesus do and then to do the same. And the reminder that we've heard tonight is that by his Holy Spirit, God will strengthen us, even if he does not spare us the ordeal or answer our prayers the way in which we might wish. The second practical suggestion I want to make to help you tomorrow and the day after and every day until we meet again is simply in these words there at point two, bold I approach. Now this is a sideways glance to that great old Wesleyan hymn, And Can It Be? No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed with righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. You see, because even though Jesus became like us in every way, except for sin, you and I, sadly, we don't live like him. We continue to stumble and fall. Which means that over and over and over again, we go looking for grace and mercy in our hour of need. Our mediator was tempted in every way, so he gets us, he knows what it's like, but he was without sin. So he is acceptable to God and entitled to stand before him on our behalf. Bold, I approach. Of course, the big question is, how exactly do you do that? How do you approach God's throne of grace? Or to use language that perhaps is more familiar with you, how do you come into God's presence each day? How does this profound theological conviction that because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and interceding for us, we are always welcome in God's throne room, how does that shape the way in which we live? Well, let me simply ask, if you're a believer tonight... What stops you from boldly approaching the throne of grace? What stops you from boldly approaching the throne of grace? Here are some of the things I think that get in the way. Pride. Pride says, I don't really need God's grace so much anymore. I'm doing just fine. Sure, once upon a time, before I became a Christian, I needed the sweet sound of amazing grace to save a wretch like me, but I'm actually not that wretched anymore. I'm doing pretty well for myself. I met someone once who said that uh, the prayer they prayed each day went something like this. Dear God, thank you that I have not sinned today so far. I haven't lied or cheated. I haven't had lustful thoughts or been impatient. I haven't been envious or malicious or particularly angry. 
I've done okay so far, but now I'm going to get up and have breakfast. So I'm going to need your help. If it's not pride that stops you from boldly approaching the throne of grace, maybe it's the exact opposite. Maybe it's self-loathing. I am so bad. I am such a failure. Surely Jesus has given up on me. After all, I've given up on myself. Or maybe it's just doubt. I don't feel like Jesus is in the throne room of God. I'm not fully convinced that he is. It seems so unreal because I've not witnessed it for myself. What Hebrews 5 does, I think, is encourage us to look to Jesus and not to ourselves. We've seen that he is there. He is in God's presence. He is on duty for us, beckoning us to come forward once again. No matter where you've been, no matter where you've wandered to, he calls us back home. Even if you don't feel like you belong, even if others say you don't belong, Jesus says you do. And he has suffered death to make it possible. So nothing else matters. Because when Jesus speaks, he's not just another servant at the foot of the throne of God. He is God's own son. Who better to intercede for us before the Father? What we believe as Christians is that by faith we are already there. We are already seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. So each day, I think, with thankfulness, it is our privilege and charge to boldly approach and claim again that which is already ours. You see that there in Hebrews chapter, in Ephesians chapter 2, which is the passage at the very bottom of your handout. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So, here's my final suggestion for the week ahead. Each morning, for one week, start by reminding yourself of where Jesus is and of how you are with him by faith. Now, there's a whole bunch of different ways in which you can do that. I think the easiest way to do that is to pray a prayer. To pray that prayer, recognising that we are already seated with him. To remind us to boldly approach and claim the crown that is ours in Christ. I've taken the liberty of writing a prayer. It's at the bottom of the page. I'm going to pray it in just a moment. I'm going to read it out for us. But to be honest, I mean, you could pray that prayer if you want this week. To be honest, what would be much better is if you wrote your own and each day gave thanks to the God who has welcomed us in. Let me lead us in prayer. 
My Father in heaven, wherever I go today, whomever I meet, whatever I say and do, thank you that I am already seated in your throne room alongside your Son. If I wander astray, if I stumble and fall, if at any point you feel far off, remind me that I will always be welcome home if only I will return to my great high priest Jesus who gets me and is acceptable to you. When I feel like giving up, please grant me the mercy and grace I need to help me in my hour of need and strengthen me to hold firmly to this faith we profess for Jesus' sake. Amen.